ವಸುದೇವಸುತ ಕಂಸಚಾಣುರಮರ್ದನಂದೇವಕೀಪರಮಂದೇಜಗದ್ಗುರು so the last verse of the ninth chapter we are on the ninth chapter and the end of the ninth chapter and the last verse i know i had uh, already talked about it last time but it's so important that i want to dwell on it a little further today before we conclude the ninth chapter so let's repeat it again manmana bhava mad bhakto manmana bhava mad bhakto ಮಧ್ಯಾಜಿ ಮಾಮಸ್ಕುರು ಮಧ್ಯಾಜಿ ಮಾಮಸ್ಕುರು ಮಾಮೇವೈಷ್ಯಸಿ ಮಾಮೇವೈಷ್ಯಸಿ ಆತ್ಮಪರಾಯಣ ಆತ್ಮಪರಾಯಣ ಫಿಕ್ಸ್ ಯುವರ್ ಮೈಂಡ್ ಆನ್ ಮೀ ಬಿ ಮೈ ಡೆವೋಟಿ ಸ್ಯಾಕ್ರಿಫೈಸ್ ಆನ್ ಟು ಮೀ thus fixing your mind on me and having me as the supreme goal you will attain me alone in the ninth chapter he's been talking about bhakti krishna has been teaching arjuna about the love of god so how do you practice this bhakti love of god and this is what he's discussing here he's teaching us here in the uh, ultimate verse of this chapter this is the midpoint of the bhagavad gita nine chapters and it's actually i didn't know this um it seems this is actually the middle shloka of the bhagavad gita half of the gita so congratulations we are halfway through <laughs> no we never complete the bhagavad gita we go round again you repeat it again so even even here in our morning chanting we chant five verses of the bhagavad gita every day in the morning and when we reach the end of the bhagavad gita uh we don't stop there we again chant the first verse so that it's a continuity but anyway midway so we are midway here midway remind always reminds me of you know i am a world war 2 history buff so there's an island called midway it's a part of the us territory and it was a major battle in the second world war it was midway in the war the pacific war changed because of the battle of midway if you look it up yeah and it's sort of midway between uh, asia and usa uh, the american north american continent anyway nothing to do with midway of the bhagavad gita also it's interesting this particular verse has been repeated at the very end of the bhagavad gita krishna repeats this almost verbatim Now the thing is the last teaching of sri krishna in the bhagavad gita is a famous verse a lot of people know about it sarva dharman parityajya mam ekam sharanam vraja uh, giving up all other ritualistic practices all other you know, religious spiritual practices take refuge in me alone krishna says at the end of the 18th chapter uh, so if i give up all religious practices won't i incur sin aham tva sarva papebhyo mokshayishyami ma shuchah i shall free you of all sin whatever you have committed in secular life or any religious offenses i shall set you free i'll give you uh, freedom moksha grieve not 
So that's the, in fact, that's the last teaching which Krishna gives in the whole Bhagavad Gita. And that's taken as a sort of um, summary of the teachings. If you, if you ask Krishna to tell you one, pra- one practical thing, if you would take away from this teaching, so that would be it. But because of its proximity to this very important verse, uh, very important, this last teaching, very soaring, sublime, powerful teaching, close to it, people overlook it. And if something this is very powerful, great, next to it, something wonderful might be there, but it gets overlooked because of its proximity to something even more great. Um, sometimes I say that Swami Brahmananda, was a, Vivekananda himself called him a spiritual dynamo, but he tends to be overlooked because of his proximity to Vivekananda. <laughs> when Swami Vivekananda passed away on the 4th of July, 1902, he was only 39, he used to say, I won't live to see 40. Before he passed, he said one thing, that uh, I must go. Uh, many a leader has ruined his followers by remaining too long with them. So he felt Brahmananda was ready to lead, to become the president of, he, became, he was the president of the order. So he left. Anyway, close to it. This verse is very close to that final verse. It's just the verse before that um, final teaching. It's not the final verse of the Gita. Um, In the 65th verse, I think, of the Bhagavad Gita, in the 18th chapter, if you go to 18th chapter, 66th verse is the famous Sarvadharman Parityajya Mamekam Sharanam Raja. This is chapter 18, verse 66. But just before that you will see almost exactly the same verse. This is 65th verse of the 18th chapter. Manmana bhava mad bhakto madhyaji maam namaskuru maame vaishyasi satyam te pratijane priyosime. So you just change the last quarter of the verse. And so this is a promise I am making to you. Know this to be true. That if you are devoted to me, if you are mindful of me, if you spiritualize all your actions, offer everything, all your actions to me, and salute me, salute the Lord, you will attain to me. Know this to be true. This is a promise I give unto you. And then comes the great next verse. Anyway, now this verse, I mentioned last time, I give a very big picture interpretation of the verse. Not something that the traditional commentators do. The big picture interpretation would be, you can see all the four yogas in this verse. What are the four yogas? If you see the spiritual teachings of Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, one is, one central teaching of course is devotion. God exists, be devoted to God, especially the avatar of God, like Krishna is the avatar of God. Be devoted to the avatar of God and you will attain God-realization, you will attain spirituality, you will attain God-realization. That is Bhakti Yoga. Then there is um, Jnana Yoga. If you know your real nature, and the real nature of God, you will know that you are identical, one and the same, aham brahmasmi. That sets you free. Because that, that real nature is free. It's not that something will happen and it will become free. You will realize you are free. You always were in your real nature as one with God. The third one he teaches is um, meditation. Especially sixth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. The yoga of meditation. How to calm and focus the mind. We are not aware how disturbed and fickle and shaky our minds are. Very shaky, very fickle. Generally so. That's the very nature of the mind. And especially in this day and age. Thanks to our digital friends. (laughs) 
There was a book years ago, Effect of Computers on School Children. And this was long before the inter uh, internet was invented, in 1990s, you know, before it became common. And the name of the book is a survey. Name of the book was, very evocatively, The Flickering Mind. Like in those days, the screens were flickering. If you go that far back, you'll remember the screens were flickering. The flickering mind. So the way to concentrate mind, the mind, meditation. He teaches the yoga of meditation. And finally, very importantly, the yoga of um, action. How do we convert our activities in this world, uh, both religious and secular, into spiritual practice? Karma yoga. Karma Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, Jnana Yoga, and Dhyana Yoga. He teaches all these yogas. Um, all of them you can find here actually. If you look at it in a broad picture way. Manmana, give your mind to me. In this, If you take it in the sense of uh, intellect, understanding. So the path of yoga, the path of Jnana Yoga is, is here. The path of knowledge. Manmana, give your mind to me. Understand who I am in relation to you. That means we are identical. Madhbhakta. Here obviously bhakti yoga can be, you can uh, segue in bhakti yoga into this. And then uh, madhyaji. Yaji here means the one who gives um, offerings into the sacrificial fire in Vedic fire rituals. The one who does yajna. But all activities can be offered to God. Whatever we do in life. As long as it's not entirely mischievous or naughty or awful. Uh, everything can be offered unto the Lord. So Madhyaji means offer unto me. All your activities offer unto me. Maam Namaskuru. I spent some time on this. The importance of actually physically bowing down to God. We have become very arrogant in this day and age. For multiple reasons. We have forgotten to bow down to anything and, uh, you know, I... Me, mine, supreme. We are not. I think it was uh, Professor Bryant who was actually criticizing the Advaitic approach. I, I am Brahman, I am Brahmasmi. He said, my God, I am God. You're saying, well, my God, I can't even control my bowel movements and I am God. <laughs> <laughs> You're controlling the universe. God. No. So that, that humility... So bow down to me, Maam Namaskuru. Um, in this way you will attain unto me. Now, I want to go a little, a little more once again. Take a look at this verse and go a little more in uh, depth. Here I'm going to use the commentary by uh, Ram Suktasji, who was a recent commentator on the Bhagavad Gita. His very beautiful book, massive book. Sadhak Sanjeevan, if you read it, it's in Hindi, the original, but it's been translated into many Indian languages. It's huge. Um, uh -huh, in English also. Um, so he spent his whole life studying and practicing and teaching the Gita. So it's good. So I was just going to talk, make a few points based on his commentary. So he says, you start with Madhbhakta, be my devotee. So fall in love with God when you discover your intimacy with God. Falling in love is being intimately close to some, somebody or something. So with my intimacy in God, what happens is 
my false identification. So one of the in, in, interesting insights of Ram Sukhdas Ji is, the eternal can only have a relationship with the eternal. The eternal and the non-eternal cannot really have a relationship. When we think we have a relationship with something non-eternal, we are in delusion. What does he mean? Non-eternal, people, places, possessions, all are non-eternal. They come and they go and that's the truth. This body, which I consider not, not that I have a relationship with the body, it's I am this body. Who am I? This one. What is this? I. And Ram Sukhdas Ji, he says it's a, it's a false idea. It's a delusion. Because it's continuously changing. It's flowing away continuously. And you try to catch hold of it, it's, delus it's delusional. You were there before this body, you, will, you are here now, and when this body will go, one day it will go, it will die. You'll still be there. But the problem is we think we are the body. This is the wrong relationship based on falsity. This is cancelled. This is overcome when you set up your relationship with the truth, with God. So, when I fall in love with God, when I have devotion and love for God, my Krishna, my Rama, my Divine Mother, Durga or Kali, in whichever way, my Rama Krishna, then it's a true relationship. You, the eternal soul, you have a relationship with the eternal God. That's a fact. Notice, this is not the Advaitic, I am that. This is a devotional, a relationship. One reason is, Ramsukdasji is very non-dualistic, very Advaitic, but his main school was Vishishta Advaita, the qualified monism, whose primary spiritual practice is devotion. So you find a lot of pointers for the practice of devotion from Ramsukdasji. So the first thing he says, you fall in love with God, your relationship now is a true relationship. Now, then what do you do? Next, manmana, that means give your mind unto me. Krishna says, give your mind unto me. So instead of being, you know, the highfalutin philosophy, this is all Vedanta, give your mind unto me to realize that you are Brahman. Instead of going to that route, he says, that be um, mindful of me. Let your thoughts be about me. Just watch our thoughts. I am a devotee, I love God. But what am I thinking about all day long? Anything except God. <laughs> Most of our thoughts are not about God. So, um, he puts it beautifully. He says, I love you, Krishna says, and I will never forget you. But you tend to forget me. So you have to be mindful of your relationship with me. Yes, you are my devotee, but be mindful of that relationship with me. Think about me, deliberately, consciously. So that is the meaning of manmana. The third he says, madhyaji. So sacrifice unto me means you offer all your activities, religious and so-called secular, as an offering to me. Whatever you do in the office, in your school, you know, in your workplace, in your service, in your community, and at home, and in your personal life, whether it is taking a bath or uh, eating food, all that you can offer unto me. Like you would offer a flower here, like you would offer you know, fruits before the altar. Similarly, you offer everything to God. Instead of saying that all this is my secular life and what I do in the temple or in my shrine, that is my religious life. Then what happens? You know, two problems that way. One is that my secular life becomes devoid of God. 
One of the things that God does for us, even long before enlightenment, it gives meaning to our lives. Then our secular life becomes meaningless. And our spiritual life suffers because the secular life demands so much of our time and effort. I mean, unless you're a monk. Uh, even if you're a monk, there are things to which are to be done in the ashram. But if you are in the world, world there, uh, in samsara, as a householder or a student, I've seen now, I'm beginning to see nowadays in colleges and all the students are not quite like students in our days. Students nowadays have lots of time. Now they don't. Their, their days are scheduled like corporate executives. Uh, and so what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is it doesn't give any extra free time to, you know, just go to the library and read a book you like, not because if it's, it's your recommended reading, just because you like. Just go and explore. Just waste time. Impossible. It seems to be like it, it, it sort of fills up your day. And they have it all got it scheduled like some Wall Street executive. <laughs> and these are not B-school students, business school students. They're just college kids. And we have the new technology to thank for it. It's all, uh, you know, they have it in joint calendars and everything. So they have their days scheduled in teamwork. It's all locked into each other. So you really cannot <laughs> escape from it. Um, anyway, so our secular life suffers if you leave God out of it, and spiritual life suffers because if you, if you, um, you know, take spiritual life out of secular life, the demands of secular life are so much. You have very little time and energy left. So the beautiful thing in karma yoga and what Krishna says, madhyaji, convert all of that into spiritual practice. And why not? If it is at all true, God is the one reality of this world. Everything in this world is pervaded by God. If that's at all true, then what we call so-called secular life must be, God must be there. We just don't see it. We have made these differences. The Japanese, in their Shinto practice, they have what are called these spirit gates. You will find, uh, I've forgotten the name for that. Uh, you'll find uh, in Japanese gardens, in, in the pond, you'll find an ornate gate. But just the gate. There are no walls or fence. I mean, that side is as good as this side. And there's supposed to be a spirit gate. That spirit gate. That side is spiritual. This side is the world. But you can clearly see it's the same side on both sides. So what is that gate? It's that, that change in your paradigm. You go through that, then you see everything is spiritual. So Madhyaji, offer everything to me. And one good practice is food because you're going to eat anyway. You're going to eat anyway. So, um, then in that case, what food you eat, offer to me. You offer, in, in uh, pujas, Hindu or Buddhist pujas, or Jain pujas, we offer food before the deity. Like that, the food which you are eating. You offer it to God and then eat it as prasad. That's what we do in a puja. We offer it to God and then after the ritual is performed, it becomes prasad. So, similarly, mentally offer whatever you are eating. There's a practice we monks, we inculcate from a very early um, stage. When we're novices, we try to develop the practice of whatever we eat. It could be a snack. It could be just a drink of water. But mentally offer it to the Lord, then it becomes prasad. It becomes, a, it, it becomes habitual. And it's, since it's something that you'll do anyway, you can do it at home, you can do it in the temple, you can do it at Starbucks, mentally. Don't start chanting mantras and... <laughs> In Starbucks. 
I remember this friend of ours, a novice a monk, when we were in training, a monastic training. So we used to share a room, three uh, novices to a room. And uh, luxury of luxuries. We were the first batch of trainees who had fans, you know, fans. And there was really a big luxury in the monastery because it's very hot there and very humid. So that was really good. But it was like one fan for the whole room. So the strategically, the, the bed which was below that fan, there was the best bed in the whole room. Anyway. Um, so I had a friend, a roommate, who was a, a novice, a brilliant person, slightly eccentric. I mean, we are all monks, so we are all eccentric, but <laughs> <laughs> you have to be a little mad to be... <laughs> But he was a little more than the rest, <laughs> slightly. Brilliant man. He was an engineer and a PhD from IIT Mumbai. He worked on, what do you call it, fluid dynamics, the flow of air over uh, surfaces, flow of fluids over surfaces. He did his PhD on that. Um, he worked for NASA for, for 10 years uh, and so on. And then he became a monk. And we were roommates. He was way above uh, me in, you know, intellectually and all of that. So, and he was uh, prematurely graying. So, you know, we had this, as novices, we had this sacred tuft of hair. So his tuft of hair was white. And so we used to call him Grandpa. <laughs> Although he was only a few years older than us, not, not much. Anyway, all of this is to show um, the practice of offering food to God before you eat it. He also did that, just like the rest of us, but he carried it to extremes. So, for example, uh, he would prepare a little snack for us. He was very kindly. Um, he would, I and the other roommate in the same room, I remember, he would prepare a little snack with puffed rice, muri, and little uh, chanachur, I don't know what you call spicy mixes and all, and prepare it and offer it to us to eat. But we couldn't eat until he said so. So what he would do is, he would take a little bit of that and put it here, a little shrine with the pictures of Sri Ramakrishna and Masharada and Swami Vivekananda. He would stand in front of the picture of Sri Ramakrishna with a little bowl with that snack which he had prepared and a spoon he would take it up and put before Sri Ramakrishna like this and he had a very piercing look. He would look at Sri Ramakrishna straight like that. <laughs> and we would have to wait. We can't start eating until he gives us the go. You know, like. So he, has, he will look at Sri Ramakrishna very uh, piercingly until he feels, it will take several minutes, until he feels that Sri Ramakrishna has accepted it, what he has cooked in his offering, until he feels he has accepted it. The moment he feels he has accepted it, he will look at us. Good, you're good to go. And we can start eating. <laughs> so that's Madhyaji. Offer what you are, whatever you eat, whatever you do, whatever you consume, whatever. It, it need not just be food. It could be you're watching a television serial or whatever. You mentally offer it to the Lord. So the attention is on, that is a spiritual practice for you, whatever you're doing. Vivekananda once, he was joking. He was a very funny guy. He was joking. People were laughing. He made a joke about Sri Ramakrishna. One of the monks was offended. And he said, is that right? You should joke about Sri Ramakrishna. He used to call Sri Ramakrishna the old guy. <laughs> so, is, is that right? You should joke about Sri Ramakrishna? And Vivekananda turned to him and said, so do you think I should joke about you? What it means is, all of what I do, even my jokes will, will be of the highest. I'll, I'll deal only with God and nothing but God. One of the vows 
which monastics take when you become a monk. One of the mantras from the Upanishads which we chant is, Brihadvadeva. From henceforth we shall talk of great things and noble things alone. Not of low things, not of petty things anymore. So, Madhyaji, offer unto me whatever you are um, doing, whatever you are consuming, whatever you are doing, all of that you offer unto me. And then he says, Maam Namaskuru. In this way, you keep bowing down to me. Now, last time I talked about bowing down physically. But, and that's very important. But also, whole of life, very beautifully how Ram Sukhdasji describes how the whole of life is a bowing down to the Lord. When we have this deep, intimate connection with God, you have this feeling, I belong to Him and He belongs to me. I am thine, my Lord, and you are mine. I mentioned this earlier, how St. Teresa of Avila, she would describe herself as Teresa of Jesus. And then she had a vision one day of Jesus, actually. And he didn't, she didn't know who this, suddenly the stranger was appearing before her. So uh, that stranger asked her, who are you? And she replied, as usual, she replied, I'm Teresa of Jesus. Who are you? He replied, I am Jesus of Teresa. I said, so how beautiful. That's why Sister Nivedita always would sign. Sister Nivedita would sign her name as Nivedita of Ramakrishna Vivekananda. So, we disc- we, so bow down to me means continuously identifying myself. Who am I? I am thine. You can think of, I am the child of the Lord. Sri Ramakrishna had that relationship with the Divine Mother Kali. I am thy child. You are my mother, I am your child could be child it could be you could be the mother and god could be your child or father and god could be your child that's a very intimate and very affectionate relationship you know if god gopalirma if god is your child very interesting i you can't ask anything of a child you can only take care of a child and love a child and this is a real thing i heard recently a devotee uh, she told me that her mother always worshipped Gopala, the child Krishna, throughout her life. And she was very devoted, this lady's mother, a very saintly lady. And it's because of her that her children um, became so interested in spiritual life. But one interesting story this lady told me that at the end of her life, her mother suffered from various illnesses and she was going into one of her multiple operations she had, going into surgery. And she was suffering. So this lady, this daughter, asked her mother, you worship Gopala so much all your life. Why don't you ask Gopala, the baby Krishna, why don't you ask him to give you some relief? Take away this pain. And she looked surprised. The old lady looked surprised and said, how can I? He's a baby. Even while going into surgery, the only thing she was worried about is who will take care of him, who will give food at the right time, who will complete the daily worship. Now see how it spiritualizes your mind. It, your mind is no longer on the problems of the body, the surgery. You don't even want anything from God. How can you? I say, this is a baby. This is my baby. How can I ask something from a baby? So, uh, he is mine, I am his. That is, that is the relationship. Um, then what happens? He draws, Ram Sukhdas Ji, draws some very interesting, beautiful conclusions. How you can make your whole life 
uh, a salutation, namaskuru, how to salute the Lord. Um, one is that you are no longer interested in asking for special favors. Then I am the Lord's, whatever the Lord does for me is fine with me. That I am the Lord's plus I want certain things in my life. I have a Christmas list, wish list. Yes, you're God, but you're also Santa Claus. You have to do these things for me. No, you don't do that. You don't do that. You're happy in just loving God. So anybody who wants certain things to go his or her way in life, and we all do, it can come, but we will say, it's all right. If we do not, if we really seriously want this should happen and that should not happen, we're still retaining a kind of independence. I may say with my lips that I am yours and you are mine, but I still hold on to a certain kind of independent wanting something for this little person. Which is a strange thing to do. When you're in the face of infinity, of God, why so much interested in? You know, when somebody prayed to Sri Ramakrishna who was dying of throat cancer, couldn't eat, please pray to the Divine Mother that you can eat. And then the, um, Sri Ramakrishna said, the Divine Mother showed me I'm eating through all these mouths. How can I pray that this too? But then the body will go, you'll die. Please let it go. This little body, what does it matter? Why do I want to hold on to it? So this is the first thing. We lose all uh, independent desire to make things better for this little person. Second, he says that normally we have a very clear view of what is nice and what is not nice. What is pleasant and what is unpleasant. Ishta, anishta, desired for and undesirable. We have a very clear view. We would want these desired for things to happen and the undesirable things not to happen. And we work all our life to make the things which we like, make them happen. Although so foolish, what we like changes so much throughout life. I, uh, when, when I was a little boy, uh, what I liked was that little um, gaudy little toy and this, and this little cartoon. And today if you... Uh, asked me to uh, you know, play with that toy and watch that cartoon, I would run a mile. <laughs> and yet, I was so fond of that at that time. That's what I really wanted. I remember reading this beautiful written book on calculus, which was awful for me when I was learning it as a kid. Now it's fascinating for me. So it's, uh, our likes and dislikes are um, it's childish. It's childish. It's, it's crazy to spend our lives chasing all that. So w what is nice for me and what's not so nice for me, those things, if you are a devotee of the Lord, if you love God, they will not be so different anymore. Yeah, I mean, you're not delusional. If there is disease, if there is unhappiness, if there is a shock, things don't go, go our way, miserable things happen in life, we know it's unpleasant. And things, nice things happen to us, people are nice to us, there is success in life, the stock market climbs, you get more Facebook likes and so on. It's nice, I know that. But it doesn't make such a big difference to me. My life is not at all about that anymore. This is the sameness of the desired, uh, desirable and undesirable. I mentioned this story earlier also. A monk, um, we were together for some time in the Himalayas. Um, in one little town called Uttarkashi, where a living little ashram, and you had to beg for your food there. And then weeks later, we're back in the big city in Calcutta, and there was a big seminar organized. And anyway, to cut a long story short, uh, it, the seminar was in one of the conference halls in the 
uh, snazziest hotel in Calcutta, a five-star hotel and whatnot. So a group of us, because we were engaged in a particular academic department which was connected with that seminar, so a group of us monks also went there. And they were mostly, the others were all teachers from different colleges. So when we sat down to lunch in this very fancy hotel, and that monk was sitting next to me, I said, Swami, 15 days ago, you were begging for food on the streets of this little town 5,000 feet in the Himalayas. And today you're sitting in the fanciest hotel in Calcutta. What do you think? What's the difference? And he said, you know what? That place where I was begging for food, I think that's not so bad at all. And this fancy place, I, don't, I think this is not so great at all. There's nothing really very great about this. There's really nothing very bad about that. They're not very different for me. And I said, see, this is the difference that renunciation makes. Look at all these people around you. <coughs> they are all school and college teachers. On their salary, they can't afford a hotel like this. So when they go back home, for days and days, they will tell stories about what fancy things they saw in this beautiful hotel. You know, the, the whole decor and the service and the food and all of that. They'll have stories to tell people at home. It's a great thing for them, an amazing thing, something that they won't forget. And if they were told tomorrow, you don't have a job, you don't have a family, you don't have a home to stay in, go and beg for your food on the streets of a little town in the Himalayas, they'll go crazy. They'll think life has, is finished. It's terrible, it's a huge difference. Renunciation makes this difference because you don't want anything at all. For you it's fine. Now, renunciation is difficult. The same effect can be uh, attained with much more delight, much more peace, much more bliss through bhakti. If all our attachment is to God, if our love is for God, then the two things don't seem very different anymore. What happens to us in the world and um, you know, if things go our way, nice, I recognize things are good. Things don't go my way, oh, too bad. But it's not, not very big. I'm not really concerned with it anymore too much. So that's why. Then he goes on to say one powerful way of making things equal and holy. See, the monk, for the monk, both were equal. Why? Both are given up. In Sanskrit, tyajya, worth giving up. I am not worried about the poverty of um, you know, begging for food from house to house. I am not interested in the wealth of going to a snazzy hotel. I give up both. So giving up makes you uh, equal, you know, same-sided towards both. But uh, bhakti does something better. It makes both of them holy. How? Prasad. Remember the offered food? So what do you do in a ritual? In a ritual we um, you know, offer flowers and incense and chant mantras and meditate on God and offer food to God. And after the puja is finished, we offer you know, pushpanjali of flower offerings, bow down, chant, and then take the partake of the offered food as prasada. Prasada literally means the sacralized food. The food which has become sacred because it has been offered to God and we mentally visualize it has been accepted by God. Sri Ramakrishna is to say that God actually does accept. If you formally, properly offer food to God, God does actually accept. Because he had seen that a ray of light comes out from the deity and touches the uh, offered food items. Anyway. Now their offered food item becomes prasad. Now once it has become prasad, 
We all know in a temple when you get prasad, we don't now decide a menu. Right? What prasada will you order? No. Whatever we get after the puja, it's taken as prasada. In normally, I might not like apples, I might like mangoes. But if in prasada I get mangoes and apples, it doesn't matter. It's prasad, it's holy for me. It's holy, the differences don't matter. Just because it has been touched and accepted by God, it's very important for me. Similarly, the beauty of Krishna's teachings is, consider all your activities in the world as puja, rituals. All karma as rituals, as puja. If all, our, all my activities are puja, then what happens, what do I get out of a puja? Prasada. The results of my karma, karma phala, the results of my karma are prasada for me. What are the results of karma? The pleasant and unpleasant effects which come. So all the pleasant and unpleasant effects which are coming in my life, things which keep happening to me, they are all prasadana. Do you see the beauty of this approach? Mentally, if I say, this has come to me as prasada, some of it is sweet, enjoyable, some of it is bitter, miserable, but if it's prasada, my attitude towards it, it is coming from the Lord, I accept it. Beautiful, isn't it? This is a very powerful way of dealing with Especially dealing with unpleasant things in life. Now he, next he comes to that. Um, Ram Sukhdasji. He comes to the next thing that unpleasant things keep happening in life. How do you deal with it as a devotee? Things which we don't want to happen, it happens. Things which we don't, we would never work for, that happens. Uh, and uh, things which we, we would, um, we would desperately wish to avoid those things keep happening in life because of our past karma so how do you deal with that um, you deal with it in the way that the Lord is giving all this to me it is for my benefit Paramasurit the Lord is my best friend Krishna himself said I am Surit I am the best friend of all beings since the Lord is the best friend. The Lord knows best. I don't know how this pain, this miserable treatment, this awful situation I find myself in life, how is it going to help me? But it probably is going to help me. Probably it could have been much worse. Who knows? We are assured, even if things are bad, it could have been much worse. I have also told this story once, a great philosopher. I won't go into the details of that. It's a long story. But this one of the greatest philosophers I knew um, Dev Dashwabu, very interesting person. <laughs> All his life, you know, uh, he had gone to Swami Premeshananda once, decades ago, 1950s, a disciple of Holy Mother, so this philosopher, Dev Dashwabu, and uh, he wanted to know if God exists. Decades later, uh, I met him when he was, this philosopher was elderly. And he still had not taken initiation. He was still thinking whether God exists 40 years later. <laughs> but I found him to be a very spiritual man because that's all he wanted, he was interested in. More spiritual than many of us would be actually. We, we think of so many things, he's thinking only of that. He's struggling with this issue. Anyhow, um, so he was in the Institute of Culture. There's a big institute in Calcutta, Gold Park, this institute. And this philosopher was there. At that time, the Swami in charge of that big institute was Swami Lokeshwaranji. Those who have seen him, a great Swami, wonderful Swami. Um, 
and one of my friends was there, another monk of my age. He was there at that time. So he told me the story about Devdas Babu, about this philosopher. He said, we young monks, we wondered why is this guy hanging around? Because unlike other philosophers who are there, under other scholars, he doesn't write books, he doesn't write articles, he doesn't give speeches, nothing, he doesn't do anything, just hangs around. <laughs> and one of us, he said, one of us complained to the Swami in charge, why do you keep him around? This guy isn't doing anything. He just is. <laughs> and the Swami, who knew his value, you know, he simply smiled. He had, he had the sweetest smile, Swami Lokeshwaranji. He just gave his famous sweet smile and he said, uh, in Bengali he said, it's good to have one or two such people. <laughs> but what was the... Then this my friend told me how he came to understand the metal of this person. Once, he said, I was standing near a window looking out on the beggar outside on the street who had only one leg and I was begging for money on the street. I was feeling bad and looking at him and thinking. Suddenly, and this philosopher could... Apparently he moved like a cat. You couldn't hear him approach. So, and he would suddenly turn up and he whispered in your ear. So he says, I was looking out in the street and suddenly he's there and whispering in my ear, feeling sorry for him, are we? <laughs> I said, yes, obviously. Ah, but if you knew what he had done in his past life, you would be running out there to cut off his other leg. God is merciful. God is loving. He has only done that much. Now, you might not agree with it, but that was his take on the law of karma. <laughs> I asked him a question once. This Dev Das Bandhubadhyay. I asked him um, about a philosopher I had read, K.C. Bhattacharya, Krishna Chandra Bhattacharya. Nobody knows about him. He was there in the early 20th century, mid-20th century in Calcutta. And if you look for his books, you won't find any. He didn't write any. Uh, he was probably the deepest thinking Indian philosopher of the 20th century. Now people are beginning to discover him. Uh, what he did was, he would just sit and think and write something on a scrap of paper and toss it away. And... Uh, well, you think, what happened to the scraps of paper? His wife swept all of them away and <laughs> tossed it into the waste paper basket. But his son rescued some of it. And those have been published as Studies in Philosophy. If you look it up, Studies in Philosophy, two volumes. And they are all scraps. One, two, three, four, just like that. But it is so profound. If you read that, you, you, I, when I first read it, I thought, amazing. This guy is, is light years beyond all other thinkers. And yet, how, how is it that we don't know about him? So I asked this Devdas Pandupadi, who was his student. Uh, so I asked him, you knew him, this Kesi Patacharya. Why don't we hear about him? And I still remember his answer. He said, ah, just as there are musicians of musicians and artists of artists, there is a philosopher of a philosopher. Uh, just there are musicians whom only other musicians understand. So he is a philosopher only other philosophers will understand. And he told me a funny story that we're going way beyond our subject. Anyway, I can't. I'll tell you this one and stop. He told me a funny story about how they would, after class, his classes were also very cryptic. Uh, no, his classes were really good, but his writings were very cryptic. 
So he says after class they would all the students would the grad students you know like the senior students they would rush to his house this philosopher's house and he would he would be scared of mosquitoes. So this this philosopher and he would sit in inside a mosquito net and then he would teach them. <laughs> so he said that once I asked him that uh, sir why are you writing so you when you teach it's so clear but why are you writing so difficult? And uh, he chuckled, Kesi Bhattacharya chuckled and said in Bengali, Ki jano torol kore nite hai. You have to melt it down. It's crystallized thought. You have to melt it down a little bit. Uh -huh. So, this Devdas Mandapadhyay, uh, my friend once asked him, So, sir, you're, you're brilliant. Why don't you um, teach or, you know, write or give lectures? So he said something which goes very much against me, but I'll still say that. He said to my friend, he said, ah, oh, but you see, those who uh, write, uh, the, those who uh, speak a lot, they can't write. <laughs> and those who write a lot don't think. <laughs> I think, I think. So all he does is sit and think. Anyway, these are amazing people. <laughs> um, back to the subject that uh, uh, he says, when things go our way and things do not go our way, both are for our our good. Why brought up all this story was to tell you the story of the beggar with one leg. Could have had no legs. We don't know why. So this faith that what is happening to us, it's all right. I'll put up with it and I'll see through to it. Not all right in the sense of a stoic. A stoic would say things go unpleasant and you have to be tough. Concentrate on what you have control over. Don't bemoan what you do not have control over. That's the stoic approach. No, here it is the firm faith that it is because, because everything happens in this universe because of the Lord. Nothing would happen without his wish. If it's happening, it's for my good. How it works is... Uh, once one brahmacharya, novice monk, was complaining to a senior monk about how people are misbehaving with him and the food is not good and his health is not good. Then after hearing all that, the senior monk said to him, I'll tell you in Bengali and translate, he said, Shabto bujlam, I understand everything. Ete tomar kono hani is it like detracting from your purification of mind? All your spiritual practices are supposed to lead to purification of mind. So all these sufferings you're talking about, is it reducing your purification of mind? No, no it's helping actually. <laughs> so, um, that might be the whole purpose of all the good and bad that happens to us. Often bad and suffering is a better teacher than the good and the pleasant. So in these ways, submitting to the Lord, Ram Sukhdasji says, um, not separately, independently desiring something nice and pleasant for myself. If I really love God. Second, not making such a vast difference between nice and bad and desirable and undesirable. I want this and I don't want that. Don't make so much difference. There isn't. The difference is mostly our delusion. Third, prasada. Take it all as I have done puja of God, worship of God and whatever is coming in my life, the karma, which is giving result to the effect, karma phala, that is prasada, that is Literally the fruits coming from my karma are the fruits of prasada which I am getting. I have no choice about it. 
all of it is holy it's better even than the monk's renunciation monk's renunciation was i give it all up so it's all same to me nothing really spectacularly good about the hotel nothing spectacularly bad about going and begging for food it's all same to me but this is even better prasada it's, it's something holy coming from the lord and then the fourth um, point ramsukdas you makes is when unpleasant things come you see it's coming from the lord and be happy that the lord is helping me in my spiritual life i have told this story also earlier about uh, this monk i heard this in the himalayas i had never met him but it was a true story do there there are two kinds of monks those who go there's a place where monks are fed so you turn up if you're a monk you'll be fed and i used to do that also there are some who don't go but they are regarded so highly by the temples and you know there's so the food is sent to them maybe they are old or something and there was this monk who would neither go nor ask for his food to be sent to himself if people the villagers regarded him very highly so they would turn up at his cave and leave food outside um so once the villagers decided to and he would always say that um, you know mera yaar khilata hai my friend feeds me yaar means even more than friend it's like buddy it's more colloquial than that so my buddy feeds me my pal feeds me buddy is god so mera yaar khilata hai i depend only on my friend so one day the villagers wanted to test uh, whether he is really so detached so they didn't bring food and they watched from a distance at the appointed time the monk came out of his um, uh, cave he looked around no food he went back and every 15 minutes he kept coming out and take a look around no food well luckily at the end of the day at sunset the villagers arrived with food and um uh, you know i hope they gave arrived food it's not part of the story they just arrived and said what happened your friend didn't feed you today yaar nahi khilaya it's like we are feeding you it's not your friend your friend didn't feed you today and the monk he came out of his cave and he broke out into a dance he said chalo aaj meri yaar ki chali chalo aaj meri yaar ki chali how do you translate that well it's a happy day today because today the will of my friend was done and they asked for an explanation what do you mean usually i want to eat and what i want god does that my friend he does what i want uh, i want to eat and he gives me food today also i want to eat i am hungry but today he didn't do what i wanted he did what he wanted that not give me food i'm so happy today what i wanted was not done but what he wanted was done chalo aaj meri yaar ki chali is absolutely convinced everything that happens in the in the universe is because of the lord's will and today the lord's will and my will are not the same that's how is one powerful way of handling unpleasant things in life so shocks in life minor problems huge problems which come in life all right chalo aaj meri yaar ki chaliye not only accept it i'll be happy so these are the ways and he says finally mat parayana keeping me as the ultimate goal refuge that word is very important see all the yogas karma yoga bhakti yoga raja yoga meditation gyana yoga they can all be twisted by the ego into personal projects see i am such a devotee of god or i am such a philosopher and you know gyani and man of knowledge it's it's still the ego 
mat parayana everything is for the lord is done as worship of the lord i am not anywhere in the, in the in the uh, equation remove the small i from the this equation so mat parayana and ram sukhdas ji there he, he says and sri ramakrishna actually says the most powerful practice sri ramakrishna says that not i but thou if you want rest if you want peace not i but thou ami jantra ami jantra to be i am the machine my mother divine mother you are the operator ami ghar tumi gharoni these are songs from a these are lines from a bengali song to the divine mother i am the house you are the mistress of the house who dwells in the house so you are in charge you you do everything in life whatever is comes to me in life and whatever is done is by your will i am like a machine which you operate so much self surrender to the lord now always common sense somebody might ask so what what about if somebody exploits you or you know teaches you that god wants you to go and kill these people and blow yourself up or knock down two buildings in new york with a uh, hijacked aeroplane what about that well there one must use common sense religion spirituality is not against common sense clearly ethical principles are being violated here god would never want you to commit mass murder or suppose many cult leaders they say you give up your will just do trust me and do what i am saying but there also common sense should be applied is it is it exploitative or is it leading so one principle um, there is some principles vivekananda gave if it makes you strong then that is the truth anything that weakens you reject as poison if it's making you more and more dependent on somebody or something then it's not good if it is selfless makes you selfless it's good that which makes you selfish is bad if it unites it's good if it divides it's bad and i'm just thinking mahatma gandhi he broke the rules he broke broke the law but notice how he broke the law the colonial government the british government there they could they had they were confounded they didn't know how to deal with him he would announce that i'm going to break this law please come and arrest me and when he would be arrested and he would put produce before the judge and he would say i broke the law and give me the i plead for how do you plead guilty and give me the maximum possible punishment and the judge said i don't know how to deal with you i have never <laughs> he there's a beautiful scene in the attenborough's movie where he sentences gandhi to jail and then he stands up in honor of gandhi he says i've never had a prisoner like you now that's uh, that's spiritual he is not hiding anything he is not hurting anybody he is knows what is moral what is ethical and is taking a stand and willing to suffer for it personally not making other people suffer so yes um mat parayana complete surrender to the divine thou my lord not i you are the operator i am the machine you are the dweller i am the house sri ramakrishna's his prayer to the divine mother तो मनमना मद्भक्त मद्याजी माम नमस्कुरु एंड सच अ पर्सन मामेवेश्यसी युक्तेवमात्मानम द वन हु इज कनेक्टेड टू मी इन दिस वे इन व्हिच वे बाय कीपिंग योर माइंड ऑन मी योर लव गिविंग योर लव टू मी ऑल योर एक्टिविटीज टू मी एंड मेकिंग योर लाइफ वन कंटीन्यूअस बाउइंग डाउन टू द लॉर्ड सरेंडर टू द लॉर्ड सो दिस इज हाउ यू प्रैक्टिस भक्ति 
And he will repeat this again at the very end of the Gita, in the shadow of the more famous verse. All right, let's um, take a couple of questions before we end. Almost run out of time. Observations, questions? No. Yes. Tell us your... You don't have to tell the name. There's no recording going on. There is, but it's... uh, (laughs) Yeah, tell me your question. Yes. Yes. Right. So, first, apparently it makes a big difference because this doesn't sound non-dualistic. So I'll tell you how it is not non-dualism and then I'll tell you how it is non-dualism. First, it's not non-dualism because um, non-dualism is you and Brahman are one and the same. Same Brahman with this body and mind is you the person. Same Brahman as the one absolute reality of the universe that is uh, you know, the creator, preserver, destroyer of the universe. You and God are one and the same reality actually. There's no difference between you and God. That's why when Sri Ramakrishna said to Vivekananda, he who was Rama, he who was Krishna is in this body Ramakrishna but not in your Vedantic sense. So he means... He, that Brahman who, who appeared as Rama in some age and Krishna in some other age as incarnations is in this today in the form of Ramakrishna. But then the non-dualist would say, yeah, and I can say the same thing also. He who was Rama, who he was Krishna is in this body, this is, is Joe. <laughs> <laughs> right. And Advaita Vedanta would say, yes, absolutely so. Is everybody. We are one and the same. But Sri Ramakrishna says, not in that sense. I mean it really. There is a God who is not individual sentient beings. He's the Lord of the universe. You are a, a limited being. In Professor Bryant's sense, the Lord controls the universe and you can't control your bowel movements. This is the difference. And this difference from that perspective, I am an incarnation of God. With all the differences between an incarnation and an ordinary sentient being like us. We have no control over our life and death. We are, we are thrown from lifetime to lifetime by our past karma. We didn't choose to be born in this way. It's produced by our past karma. It's, we are strictly under the domain of causality. But incarnation of God is not under the domain of causality. Incarnation of God is independent. does not come because of past karma. It comes with all the power and glory of God in order to intervene in human history, in order to change human history and uplift those who want spirituality and all of human humanity and all of that. So all of that, the whole doctrine of the incarnation, Ramakrishna says you have to take it seriously, not dismiss it non-dualistically. So when Krishna is saying this, it is not non-dualistic, he means it seriously that there is God and I am the incarnation of God. And you are ordinary sentient beings like Arjuna and um, you're caught in this cycle of samsara and I'm here to help you liberate yourself in all these ways and all, all these teachings. So take it seriously as it is said.
Now, can you reconcile non-duality with it? Yes, you can. If you look, the standard Advaita model is um, one existence consciousness bliss, non-dual. There's no second reality ap apart from Brahman. Uh, Sat, Chit, Ananda, non-dual existence consciousness bliss. That's the only reality. The entire universe is an appearance of that reality. It, that's, that's the standard idea of Advaita Vedanta. Brahma Satyam, the absolute is the real. Jagat Mithya, the universe is an appearance. And what are you? Jiva Brahmaivanapara. You are none other than that absolute. Or I am Brahman. That's the teaching. In that case, the world which is an appearance. And God is also part of this world. Or the world is part of God. So Brahman appears to you as God, universe and individual being. In this universe, when we clearly see ourselves as embodied individual beings, inhabiting a vast universe, then religion says that beyond, behind all of this is one God. And Advaita says, behind this uh, or underlying this triangle, God, universe and you. Underlying this triangle is one reality. That's the non-duality. It's the same non-dual Brahman who is the God of this universe, is this universe and is you also. That's why this doctrine of two truths is very useful. Absolute truth and relative truth. Paramarthika, Vyavaharika. Which is which Buddhists also do. The Mahayana Buddhists also take, take recourse to the doctrine of two truths. They have no God talk there. But there is an absolute realm of truth. And there is a conventional truth. In conventional truth, Advaita would say, God is as true as you are. If you take yourself seriously as I am this being. And we must. And if you take, think this world to be real, then God is equally real. How real? As real as you and this world. Well, this world is not ultimately real. Okay, God is not ultimately real. Oh, so are you saying God is false? No. Advaita Vedanta says, Brahman is real, the world is an appearance, and you are none other than Brahman. In that case, what about God? It remains silent about God. So God is also none other than Brahman. If you are none other than the absolute reality, is God also something different from the absolute reality? No. God is also that absolute reality. When we take the relative world to be real, that absolute reality becomes the God of religion for us. You want a precise definition of God in Advaita Vedanta? There is. A very precise definition. I'll give you the Sanskrit and give you the English translation. Leave it at that. Um... Samashti Agyana Upahita Chaitanya. What is Ishwara or Bhagavan or Saguna Brahman? Ishwara means God. Bhagavan means God. Saguna means Saguna Brahman means Brahman with attributes. Definition. It is the absolute reality, pure consciousness, associated with Maya. Associated with Maya. What are we then? You are the same absolute reality, limited by ajnana or ignorance. And what is the relationship between ignorance and maya? Ignorance is a fraction of maya or a power of maya. There are different philosophies which um, understand it differently. Yeah. You can put it this way. God is the totality. We are part of it. We are a tiny part of it, each of us. And what is Brahman? Neither totality nor part of it. There is no totality or part there. There is one reality which appears as this whole mass in which we are tiny parts and there is a whole to it. The totality. The cosmic, the totality, God. The individual, us. But beyond the cosmic and the individual is one non-dual reality. <laughs>
which is Brahman, which is you actually. Yeah. That's what Sam Altman, ChatGPT, somebody asked him, so I got the reference, somebody in YouTube wrote, I, I gave a talk and I mentioned it, so somewhere vaguely I mentioned I had heard this, and then somebody on YouTube uh, wrote a comment, that if you look up his Twitter feed, somebody asked him, Sam Altman, that, uh, tell us one thing you believe which mo mostly people don't believe. And he said, I believe in the absolute equivalence of Brahman and Atman, using those words. <laughs> so I think he's a non-dualist maybe in a Vedantic sense. Okay, I'll come to you, but gentleman at the back. Yes. Um, you mentioned that one of the tracks of yoga is like doing it for ego-driven reasons. Yes. Yes, it's subtle. The ego is very subtle. Yeah, it uh, it can uh, when you want it to be when you want to be spiritual and rise above the ego. The ego will come and say, "I can help you do that." <laughs> It'll volunteer. I'm going to be a good ego from now on. <laughs> and for a long time, we can't help it because we are so closely identified with the ego, the sense of I. Uh, it's very difficult. You can say that I am witness consciousness. I am the witness of the ego, which is actually the fact. But we still feel and act like that and speak like that, that we are the ego. So till that time, the uh, practice of this bhakti, as uh, uh, Krishna says in the ninth chapter, that, uh, to continuously surrender to the Lord, you know, make the ego smaller by the presence of a, a greater I, not the ego, which is the small I, but a big I, which is the I of God. If you make it, I am Brahman, that ego itself will become inflated. And I am Brahman, yeah, I, that's good, I like that, I am Brahman. No. So it's much better. Swami Turiyanandaji, a great Vedantist himself, he says, I don't say I am Brahman, because Vivekananda could say that. But for us it's better to say thou and not I. So that's one way. We, especially in this day and age, we are very self-obsessed. My problem, my uh, issues, my... I have a portfolio of problems, <laughs> which I'm very careful about maintaining, even more than my stocks and bonds portfolio. No, 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 no. let go. Make it small. And in each of the yogas, it can inflate the ego. The jnana yoga can make me... I have read all the books and I know all the arguments and I am more knowledgeable than you are. The bhakti yoga, I am the servant of the Lord, I am more humble than you are. And then you become, <laughs> there's, there's a, there is a conflict then. Who is the, the, uh, the humblest, the least egotistical of all? The, the ego becomes about that. I am a better meditator than you are. Mm. Or in the field of action, of course. I am a better worker. Action can inflate the ego like anything because some people are better workers. And it becomes evident. Uh, so... Um, you can set up institutions and get awards for the recognition for your good works in society. And that inflates the ego. So all of these ways, one has to watch out for the ego. Uh, each, e each of the yogas can, do a, uh, can inflate the ego in a particular way. And this has to be careful. Bhakti is a good way of, um, of you know, like this bowing down. There must be some place 
the Lord, and then Guru, some person, living person before whom I unquestioningly bow down. I, I, I lowered my ego. Mm-hmm. So obviously Lord Krishna is talking about the devotees who are totally surrendering to God. Mm. So my question is, as one moves towards a total surrender, will the self-effort fall off by itself? Yes. And the Lord will take care of you. The Lord promises, I will take care of you. Suppose I am so much engaged with God. What about my job and my... Uh, you will do that anyway. Is Krishna going to do my job? Yeah. So... Not literally, not right now. But you can see, you can't even stop yourself from doing your job. So <laughs> you will do it, but it's no longer the central concern of your life. And don't worry, you'll be taken care of. All right, last question. Yes, that's a good question. But first, level of consciousness. You know, in Vedanta, we are always uncomfortable when we talk about levels of consciousness, states of consciousness. In Vedanta, this consciousness is one and you know, the absolute reality. So there's levels of mind. I mean, this is just a quibble, but it's important to know. Levels of mind or states of mind. Waking, dreaming, deep sleep, samadhi. These are states of mind, not of consciousness. Consciousness is like one light. Uh, and that's your real nature. Pure consciousness, of course. But now your question was different. It was about the ego. In this world, you need to ma- maintain a certain level of, a, of like in the words, what might be called a healthy ego. It's good. It's a good question. Because yoga, Vedanta, even bhakti, this is not for shaky people. This is not for weak people. Often people's egos are not well developed, not in the sense of not being egotistic, but not healthy. People, a lot of guilt, shame, shaky, lack confidence in themselves. So, often these talk about complete surrender to God. Or I am not the body, not the mind, I am one consciousness you know, in everybody. This kind of expansion beyond the ego, this can be misunderstood by um, person who is not yet well developed. A well developed personality is a prerequisite for spirituality. So one one aspect of a well developed personality. There's a difference between aggression and you know, this to teach us. Uh, this of course there was a course called assertiveness training. So on one end of the spectrum is aggression. Um, you know, being angry and bullying others to get your way and aggressive. The other end of the spectrum is um, is manipulativeness, is manipulativeness. Uh, so, uh, n- not being aggressive but trying to get your way by, you know, playing politics and lying and sneaking around, manipulative. So neither of them is good. What is good is a, a healthy ego will be assertive. So you say no when you wa- when you feel that you have to say no. You say if you want to ask for something, you ask for something. Don't try to extract, don't try to wheedle or whine your way into it. Ask, you have a right to ask, the other person has a right to say no, both should be fine with you. 
So this was taught, and we used to joke about it. Assertive training, we used to say, uh, telling us how to be rude for free. <laughs> Assertiveness training. <laughs> That's one sign of a healthy ego. Uh, I mean, a good deal of modern psychology is to develop a healthy ego. Whether it's Freudian psychoanalysis or modern cognitive behavior therapy, uh, and how to deal with others in a healthy way. A healthy ego is... is it's, uh, Freud was asked once about this healthy ego. Because in Freudian psychoanalysis, anything and everything is a sign of trouble. So he was asked, so in, in psychoanalysis, how do you define a normal person? If you say, I have no problems at all, then the psychoanalyst will tell you that's a sign of a serious problem. You're suppressing everything. <laughs> I don't have an issue. Oh, then you have very serious issues. You're suppressing everything. <laughs> so what is it to be normal? And Freud gave a beautiful answer. What's a healthy ego? What's a normal ego? He says, if you have the ability to work and love, you're normal. If you can relate normally to people, that's a sign of health. And if you can do your own work, that's a sign of health. Even now, psychiatrists do that. They just look whether the person is able to take care of himself or herself and just do the basic uh, things, you know, they tick off, take care of personal hygiene, food, a basic routine, the job which is... Not your high-pressure uh, Wall Street job. Just a basic job that also if a person is able to fulfill the basic requirements also. Turn up for the job, for example, and so on. Then a person is normal. So that kind of, it's a good question. Uh, one, um, one person, you may have heard of him, Rajiv Malhotra. So he's in Princeton, he's written a number of books on Hinduism. So he said to me that I am often disturbed that when gurus and swamis they keep talking about transcending the ego surrendering or you know expanding they say i'm i'm one with everybody uh, but even before a person is confident and strong in you know, himself or herself in, in his own language culture religion even before that if you say um, surrender everything or become one with one this is uh, and i said you're right first vivekananda was very clear about it first be a strong person First be a good person, then a spiritual person, a confident person. Swami Vivekananda gave great stress on character development as the basis for spirituality. Good. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupa Namastu